So, um, Richard Dawkins is the, the gift that keeps on giving uh, to apologetics. He certainly put the conversation about God back on the map uh, nationally, took it off the uh, taboo table and put it onto the it's good to have a conversation about table. So for that at least, uh, I'm sort of thankful uh, to Dawkins and the, the whole sort of new or neo-atheist movement uh, of which he is probably the most famous representative. Um, he very recently brought out a uh, new edition of his book, The God Delusion, uh, anniversary edition with a new uh, introduction by Dawkins and our, our afterword uh, by Daniel Dennett, a new atheist philosopher from the States. So uh, I've entitled this little talk Dissecting uh, Dawkins' Defence of the God Delusion because what it does in this new introduction is to try and take on some of the critics' uh, criticisms of his book The God Delusion um, which covers a whole variety of stuff but I'm going to focus, as he does in the, in the introduction there, on the, the main issue of is it reasonable to believe in a god? Uh, he very soon introduces this notion that, that to believe in God is a temptation. Sort of appropriating some religious language there. Uh, he talks about the God temptation. The God temptation, he says, is the temptation to evade by invoking a designer... And he's, as a zoologist specifically, uh, has had a long-term interest in the design argument, as we'll see. To evoke, uh, by invoking a designer, uh, the responsibility to explain the world. So he thinks we have this intellectual responsibility to try and explain things. And if you're tempted to invoke, oh, there must be a designer in order to explain things, that is a uh, temptation to be avoided, that's a bad thing uh, to be avoided, um, which sort of puts his playing cards on the table from the beginning, in, in a sense, in, in that you might say, well, look, if there, if there is a designer, then to appeal to design is, of course, to offer a true explanation that advances our knowledge of reality. Um, why is that a, why label that a temptation? He really, as we see, as we go through, sort of begs the question against design being a permissible answer to that intellectual responsibility to try and explain the world. Um, this is a very old-fashioned picture of uh, Christ as creator, but I've superimposed here the latest uh, map of the entire visible cosmos that we have, uh, which is fun. So he moves on to talking about the design temptation to, to setting out the design problem or problem from his atheistic point of view, as it were. Uh, and he puts it this way. He says, you and I and every other living creature are machines of ineffable complexity. Complexity of a magnitude to challenge credulity. And uh, as a philosopher, I appreciate the fact that he goes on to define his terms and he says, complexity here means, so I'm going to define my terms, statistical improbability in a non-random direction. So he doesn't just mean unlikeliness. 
He means statistical improbability, unlikeliness, complexity in a non-random direction, i.e. the direction of seeming designed for a purpose. So when he says the problem is this ineffable complexity, he doesn't just mean unlikeliness. It, there's something more going on that raises the problem than mere unlikeliness. I agree with him about that. I think, in other words, he is acknowledging that what intelligent design theorists would call specified complexity, and I'll explain that momentarily, is a plausible indicator of, of design. And that's the problem that he faces an, as an atheist. Uh, indeed, some years ago in a, in a Free Inquiry magazine, in an op-ed in uh, 2004, he discussed this notion of specified complexity in positive terms. And he said that specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that in the unique disposition of its parts, a, a pile of detached watch parts just tossed into a box is as improbable as a fully functioning, what he calls genuinely complicated watch. I specified complex watch. He's saying, look, this pile of detached watch parts is one possible arrangement of all of those watch parts out of all of the possible arrangements of watch parts. So, but there's clearly a, a difference between a watch and all of the other arrangements of what, you know, watch parts just tossed randomly in a box, which means that the watch is something that you rationally think, ah, that's probably got to be explained by design, whereas the tossed about in a watch parts in a box, you can, you can avoid doing that, yeah? And he says what's uh, uh, you know, as improbable as a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch. What is specified about a watch is it's improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. So all of these parts have been arranged in a way that, that achieve a function beyond those parts. So, uh, to unpack specified complexity a little bit more, uh, Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, whose website I hope you frequent, uh, Reasonable Faith, if you don't, uh, he notes that in addition to high Im improbability or complexity, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern in order to tip us off to design as a, as a marker of design. When those two elements are present, we've got specified complexity, which is the tip-off to design. Nice example. Um, in a poker game, any deal of the cards is equally and highly improbable. One possible deal out of all the possible arrangements of the deals. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, I mean, the winning hand... Um, you can bet, haha, that this is not the result of chance but design. You know, and if the, if the cowboy in Dodge City, when accused of cheating by the other cowboys, says, hey, what are you accusing of? There's nothing suspicious going on here. I mean, after all, all of the arrangements of these cards in, dealt in hands are equally improbable. <laughs> That's not going to wash with them. They're going to say, yeah, it's not just that it's improbable. <laughs> You know, look at what you're getting. <laughs> look at what it is. Look at the specification of the improbability. Yeah? 
so uh, someone, you see someone enter a series of numbers into a cash machine and it gives them money. Uh, were they, A, lucky, that's uh, odds of about 1 in 10,000 just for the pin number, isn't it? Uh, or did they get the money by design? Even at that level, you think probably design is the best explanation. Maybe they, maybe they were lucky, but what's the most reasonable uh, explanation that you're going to go for? Uh, when a complex event, uh, event matches an independently given functionally specified pattern, we naturally and quite reasonably infer design. So this is the, the problem that Dawkins points to, that is discussed before, and in a sense, you could say Dawkins is giving us a design argument here, and the interesting thing about this design argument is that it's logically valid, and Richard Dawkins endorses both of the premises. But, yeah, what's he going to do with that? So, uh, first premise, specified complexity is a reliable indicator of intelligent design. Second premise, nature contains specified complexity, as we'll see, he talks about this at both the organic and the cosmic levels, from which it follows deductively that nature contains a reliable indicator of intelligent design. And of course, he's uh, atheist, so he's going to demur in some way from this. So he talks about the organic design problem in this introduction. He says, every animal embodies a statistical complexity of detail i.e. every animal exhibits at various levels improbability in a non-random direction, i.e. specified complexity. Um, it talks about that the complexity, i.e. the specified complexity, of the living body, indeed if every one of its trillion cells, is so mind-shattering to anyone who truly grasps it, that the temptation to buckle at the knees and succumb to a non-explanation, as he sees it, is almost overwhelming. And he says there's also another level which this problem arises at the sort of cosmological level uh, where the laws and the constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which eyes and peacocks and humans and their brains and so on will come into existence. Well, I would say can come into existence. He says, it's almost as though you have to have, in inverted commas, faith that it really is only a trick. Faith that nothing supernatural has happened. It's rather a fascinating comment for him to pass, I think. Uh, particularly given when you, you about what he thinks faith automatically has to mean, i.e. belief without evidence. But there we go. So he's going to, of course, try and flip this problem around. After all, he's uh, writing a book called The God Delusion. Um, so he says, look, at the level of the organic design problem, Darwin, it's Darwin, patently, tells us exactly how the trick of life works. It's cumulative natural selection. It's, it's random variation, cumulative natural selection, and you get... Uh, this production of this specified complexity, say so, so. Well, so far as the question of life's origin goes, of the question of the origin of something capable of evolving, that answer is a 
a patent red herring. You, you cannot explain the origin of something able to undergo evolution by variation and natural selection by invoking evolution by variation and natural selection. Yeah? So that's a red herring. Uh, even at the organic level, at the basis of the organic level. Uh, even if you think you know, Darwin or neo-Darwinian evolution is the most wonderful theory ever that can explain everything that it could possibly explain, but it couldn't possibly explain this. As the atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, writes in his very interesting little book, um, Seeking God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design, he's going for sales. He partially defends intelligent design. But anyway... He's uh, an atheist philosopher of science, and he notes um, that however life arose from non-life, it didn't happen via the Darwinian mechanism of natural selection. Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even purport to explain how life came to arise in the first place. So this is uh, uh, not a uh, partisan point that I'm making here. Or as the uh, atheist turned theist, stroke deist, depending on how you're defining it, Anthony Flew uh, says in his uh, uh, last will and testament was that there is a God, having been uh, one, of the, one of the most famous atheists of the 20th century. Uh, but in an uh, interview with Benjamin Weicker, at the time that this book came out, uh, he pointed out that the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could magically generate the genetic code and the, the specified complexity of the information in the genetic code. Um, the best confirmation of this radical gulf is Richard Dawkins' comical effort to argue in The God Delusion that the origin of life can be attributed to a lucky chance. He says, if that's the best argument you have, the game is over. Or uh, atheist philosopher of mine, Thomas Nagel, uh, in his essay on Dawkins and atheism. Uh, he says, Dawkins says, look, there are a billion, billion planets in the universe. I think we've discovered recently that there are more than that. <laughs> but there are a billion, billion planets in the universe uh, with life-friendly physical and chemical environments. Now, actually, that's a guess on Dawkins' part. We don't know of any other planets with uh, life-friendly physical and chemical environments. We have actually discovered none. We've discovered some that might potentially, um, but we don't know. know, It all depends on, well, if they're rocky, which we don't know, and if there's water there, which there might not be, and if it, etc. They always get overblown headlines in the newspaper of reports of new scientists and things. Anyway, Dawkins just makes this guess that let's say there are a billion, billion life permitting planets out there. So all we have to suppose is that the probability of something like DNA forming, or more than that actually, enough to have a replicating, self-sustaining living system uh, forming, is not much less than one in a billion billion. Job done. Uh, But Nagel says expositions of research on the origin of life indicate that no one has a theory that would support anything remotely near such a high probability of life coming into existence. At this point, the origin of life remains in light of what is known about the huge size, the extreme specificity 
and the exquisite functional precision of the genetic material a mystery, an event that could not have occurred by chance. So I, you know, I give you a discussion between atheists at this point. <laughs> also, recently fascinating comment from uh, atheist Michael Ruse, who, again, is not one of the new atheists. Um, he's a philosopher of science, though, from the States. He uh, recently commented that we have today a vocal anti-Darwinian party consisting, somewhat surprisingly, not only of the evangelical Christians of the American South, you know, all of those fundamentalist religious folks, integrationism and stuff basically bags it all together, but of some of today's most eminent atheist philosophers. He has noticed this uh, move of the last decade. For example, uh, atheist philosopher Mary Midgley in her book, Are You an Illusion?, she says this, says the idea of natural selection, we're moving on now from the origin of life to, well, what about that Darwinian explanation? Mary Midgley, atheist philosopher, the idea of natural selection, which is usually called in to account for this vast creative surge, is already looking increasingly inadequate to explain evolution. Natural selection is only a filter and filters do not provide the taste of the coffee that pours through them. What a nice uh, analogy, turn of phrase that is. Similarly, uh, the range of evolutionary alternatives between which selection takes place has to be there already in matter. How it comes to be present there is the real mystery about creation. The heavy lifting has got to be done by the chance before it can be selected. Uh, in other words... Well, the atheist philosopher Jerry Fodor says it's important to see that phylogeny, i.e. common descent, yeah, could be true even if adaptationism isn't. Adaptationism would be that random variation and natural selection is the kind of mechanism that explains the evolution of things into the pattern of, of organisms related by common descent. So there's are two separate hypotheses that can be judged separately. So common consent could be true, but adaptationalism could be false. And he says, the classical Darwinist account of evolution is primarily driven by natural selection is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. An appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists, by which I, mean, I think he means probably non-religious ones, <laughs> uh, are coming to think that the theory of natural selection can no longer be taken for granted. And he wrote a book uh, with a biologist called um, Massimo Priatelli Palmarini uh, called What Darwin Got Wrong, (laughs) Uh, in which they say uh, Darwin's theory of natural selection is fatally flawed. And they go on to say, we don't know what the mechanism of evolution is. As far as we can make out, nobody knows exactly how phenotypes evolve. So... Uh, Atheist Thomas Nagel again says the dominant scientific consensus faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem. 
I, that is the sort of gap that the more we know, the bigger it's getting, uh, as it were. So yeah, there's a dominant scientific consensus, um, but there are, uh, there, it, you know, um, people questioning that consensus for non-religious reasons today. There, there is a growing debate and conversation about it, uh, and it, uh, Dawkins can't just uh, punt to it uh, without uh, being involved in this inter-atheist discussion, let alone you know, being in conversation between him and um, us as theists, whatever we... Uh, you know, and of course, theists take different stances on uh, evolution itself anyway. But it's, I think, worth pointing out this growing uh, intra-atheist intra debate. But what about the cosmic design problem? Because even if you, you granted him his explanation for the biological complexity, you've still got the cosmic complexity that is a precondition for that biological complexity to account for anyway. Well, he says, the multiverse, the multiverse theory. He says, there are billions of universes having different laws and conditions. We could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants happen to be propitious to our evolution. Of course, we can only exist in a universe where we are a possible kinds of thing that is compatible with our existence. So the real objection here, the ultimate objection to this design argument comes down to this. Dawkins saying, here's a premise. If, notice the if, if there were enough different universes, if this hypothesis were true, then the specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex enough, wouldn't be unlikely enough to justify making a design inference. It is specified, but is it unlikely? It's got to be both for us to infer design. And he says, well, what if there were lots and lots of different universes just randomly having lots of different tunings and laws and things? Then by luck, there would be one or more universes where we could evolve, and of course we evolve in one where we could. Premise two, there are enough different universes, differently tuned and so on. You need premise two in order to get from premise one to the conclusion, therefore the fine-tuning of our universe does not justify a design inference. Uh, of course, I've got premise two flashing away there, because at the moment, as far as I can see, that is just a pure assertion. <laughs> it is not a sufficient objection to the design argument to simply say, if this scientific theory were true, then your argument wouldn't work. <laughs> you actually have to give a reason for thinking that that alternative scientific theory is true. <laughs> Let me give you an analogy, my monkey Shakespeare analogy, with my Simpsons slide here. Um, okay, let's grant for the sake of argument that if X number of monkeys with enough typewriters and paper and so on existed, however many that needs to be, if X number of monkeys existed, then they could type out Shakespeare's complete works, 
by chance. Okay. Nevertheless, anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis as an explanation for a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare, surely they're going to want to know is there any independent reason to think that there are X number of monkeys with enough typewriters and paper who have been working away for long enough <laughs> in order to say, well, you're, you're wanting to explain this book by reference to design, but I've got a, a much simpler, more economic, a naturalistic hypothesis that explains that. If there were enough monkeys with enough typewriters... You, you, you'd be silly to believe in a designer, wouldn't you? See? <laughs> and the analogy is, is uh, directly parallel. If not, in the absence of independent evidence for, the, for that alternative explanation, um, you are, of course, completely rational to favour the it-was-designed explanation. There was an author explanation. Um, so... In his book, Why Does the World Exist?, the agnostic writer Jim Holt says, since other universes are by definition not directly observable from our own, <laughs> the burden of proof here is clearly on those who claim that they exist. The MIT physicist Alan Lightman recently commented, we have no conceivable way of observing these other universes and cannot, in that sense, prove their existence. So how do you go about meeting this burden of proof? Well, some scientists think there may be a way. You may have heard recently uh, some of the news uh, about the BICEP2 uh, cosmic background radiation uh, results. Um, and some scientists think that if there were um, other universes generated by a particular cosmological theory of inflation, um, then we would have sort of uh, signs within the cosmic background microwave radiation uh, of a sort of uh, universes bumping against each other in the sort of multi-dimensional universe space, as it were. Um, here's a quote from Physics World, February 2015. Uh, astronomers working on the background imaging of cosmic extragalactic polarisation, BICEP2, telescope at the South Pole, have withdrawn their claim to have found the first evidence of the primordial B-mode polarisation of the cosmic microwave background. That's what they're talking about there. It now seems clear that the signal initially claimed by BICEP2 as an imprint of the rapid inflation of the early universe is in fact a foreground effect caused by dust within the Milky Way. Theoretical physicist Brian Green um, in August 2016 commented, people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there is no evidence supporting their existence. Or theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli, uh, author of the recent bestseller Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, uh, said in April 2016, I see no reason for rejecting a priori the idea that there's more in nature than the portion of space-time we see, but I haven't seen any convincing evidence so far. And in September 2016, recent edition of New Scientist, in the cover article on the nature of reality, 
Stuart Clark and Richard Webb comment that the difficulty about these multiverse theories is how you get convincing evidence for the existence of any of them. And they pass a general critique of those kind of theories as well when they say, by allowing every possibility besides the one you're probing to play out somewhere in the multiverse, science robs itself of its predictive power. Um, if you can say, well, it's not surprising that we're here in a, in a fine-tuned universe, um, because, after all, there are gazillions of gazillions of different universes out there, all, all of which are slightly different, with different things going on in them. Well, couldn't you pretty much say that about any observation that you make? Um, well, some, you know, everything's going to happen somewhere in the, in the infinite multiverse, kind of, you know, uh, or however large you make it. Uh, Dawkins continues to punt to an old cosmological theory by Lee Smolin. He says, Lee Smolin suggests a stronger analogy to Darwinism and cosmology in which universes give birth to daughter universes with mutated laws and constants. Um, I don't know all the ins and outs of this. I'm a philosopher, not a cosmologist, but it has to do with um, black hole formation and uh, universes being birthed through black holes and things. William Lane Craig, who knows more about this sort of thing than I do, says that first, a fatal flaw in Smolin's scenario is his assumption that universes fine-tuned for black hole production would also be fine-tuned for the production of stable stars and thus life and so on. In fact, the exact opposite is true. The most proficient producers of black holes would be universes that generate primordial black holes prior to star formation so that life-permitting universes would actually be weeded out by Smolian's cosmic evolutionary scenario. Um, so it sort of the theory backfired on itself, basically. So, uh, second, speculations about the universe begetting baby universes via black holes have been shown to contradict quantum physics. Um, don't ask me how. <laughs> You'll have to go and read the research yourself. <laughs> General criticism of multiverse theory as well, that it's actually disconfirmed by observation. A slightly bigger uh, universe map here and a picture of our solar system. Uh, Craig, following on from um, I think Roger Penrose, uh, notes that the odds of our universe is just one of these fine tuned conditions, the low entropy condition, the odds of that obtaining by chance alone are in the order of one chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Mathematicians, is that a big number? Yes. yes. <laughs> um, for non-mathematicians, that number is so big that you literally could not write it down if you tried to use the entire universe to write it down in. Okay. <laughs> there are more zeros in that than there are fundamental particles. Um, so that's a big number. But the odds of our solar system just are forming instantly from the random collisions of particles is, on the other hand, about 1 in 10 to the 10 to the 60. Now, that's a big number, but it's inconceivably smaller than 1 in 10 to the 123. 1 in 10 to the 10 to the 123. So, here's the take-home. If our universe were but one random member of a collection of randomly ordered parallel universes, different universes and so on, 
it is vastly more probable that we should be observing a much smaller habitable universe, habitable region of space-time, than we do observe. Because such regions of space-time that are habitable, but reasonably small, would be much more likely, and therefore would be there'd be more of them than universes like the one we do see, which is a huge universe that's habitable. See? So if we're just meant to be this sort of, oh, by luck we're here because of the random ordering of universes with the different laws and so on, then actually we, sh- we should probably be seeing a much smaller universe than the one we do. So the fact we see a big one is observational evidence that tends to undermine the theory of multiple universes. As the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis says in his book uh, The Goldilocks Enigma, the first edition of which was called uh, The Fifth Miracle, interestingly, uh, he says multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse. Anyway, uh, there has to be, in any sort of physical, cosmological sort of theory of, of multiverse, there has to be some sort of finely tuned universe generating mechanism. There has to be a physical mechanism that produces <coughs> lots of different universes. You can ask the question, how come the mechanism that's producing different universes produces different universes rather than just spitting out carbon copies of the same uninhabitable universe multiple times? That mechanism that you see it has to be fine-tuned in just the right unlikely specific way to spit out universes that could possibly include a universe that is fine-tuned for life. So you just kick the problem up. The multiverse theory, says Davis, cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. So we can extend... Dawkins' design argument here. We've got premise one, specified complexity is a reliable indicator of intelligent design. Two, nature at various levels includes specified complexity. Three, therefore, nature contains a reliable indicator of intelligent design. Premise four, the most plausible source of intelligent design in nature, in the warp and woof of nature, is God, is theistic is some kind of theistic explanation. From which you can draw the conclusion that therefore the design of nature is a good argument for belief in some kind of theism. Now Dawkins attacks the fourth premise of this argument. That kind of leaves um, a rather significant bit of the argument uh, still in play. But still, he uh, demurs from this temptation to punt to God specifically as the explanation uh, for this uh, design problem. He says, critics of my book honed in on what they rightly saw as its central and most damaging point. This is like the key most damaging point. Okay. The designer himself, in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex entity of the kind that in turn needs to be given the same kind of explanation. In other words, as he says in the God Delusion bulk, he says God would have to be a highly improbable 
uh, in the same statistical sense as the entities he's supposed to explain. Um, this argument, he says, in the new introduction remains intact and inescapably devastating. Did you feel devastated? <laughs> um, in other words, I think he's kind of saying, if you explain the existence of anything with reference to the existence of some other thing that also needs an explanation, you produce an explanatory regress. And we don't like regresses. Um, yes, but so what? Is kind of my answer to that. Um, really, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable. Really? That's just wrong. Um, look at this self-portrait by Rembrandt. What do you think the best explanation for the existence of that self-portrait is? I think it might be Rembrandt. Which entity do you think is more complex in the statistical complex sense here? The portrait or Rembrandt? I rest my point. So, uh, we do make an explanatory advance if we explain that portrait by the yet more complex Rembrandt, don't we? Um, or as Dawkins puts it, uh, Craig puts it, in order to ex for an explanation to be the best explanation of something, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation anyway. Indeed, such a requirement would generate an infinite regress. We don't like regresses. Uh, so that everything becomes inexplicable and science becomes impossible, which would be you know, problematical. Um, perhaps, perhaps Dawkins is actually confusing an explanatory regress with an infinite explanatory regress. That's really the problem. I, well, I, yes, I would agree. Um, I'd agree that an infinite explanatory regress is to be avoided, but while explaining A by reference to B doesn't entail an infinite regress, necessarily, um, the assumption, of course, that for an explanation to be the best, you've got to have an explanation of it, that does entail an infinite regress, as Craig points out. Um, so Dawkins needs to be very careful here. Perhaps his use of the word suffice, I'm bending over backwards, it indicates the thought that no explanation that's complex in the sense of being unlikely and thus contingent can ever suffice as an ultimate explanation for something. Since all contingent things require an explanation, all specified complexity requires a design explanation and infinite regress is to be avoided. Um, I'd agree. But now I'd note that although Dawkins has just unwittingly endorsed a version of the cosmological as well as the design argument... Um, he makes the question-begging assumption that God can't be a necessary being. This is where it really comes down to. He just begs the question against God being the explanation. Uh, he says, critics of my books grasping at straws, no, putting their finger on the absolute central fallacy of what he's saying, grasping at straws, they try to deny that a God capable of designing something complex, specified complex, must himself be complex in that sense really have you ever, I've, I've got a set of these at home um, fridge magnets um, design your own deity fridge magnets where they, they've, you can pop them out and you've got all sorts of deities from different religions around the world and you can mix and match the bits of the deity pictures to design your own deity <laughs> um, 
A God capable of designing something complex, i.e. Mean, something exhibiting the specified complexity of contingent statistical probability in a non-random direction, must himself be complex, in the very same sense, must be something exhibiting a contingent? See, it must be. He's begging the question against God being something other than a contingent being. Richard Swinburne, the British philosopher, um, takes this and he says, why does he think this? He, he asks. Dawkins doesn't say. Well, Dawkins has a stab at saying the introduction, uh, in the new introduction. He says, look, God has to be clever enough to calculate the exact values of all those physical constants that would fine-tune the universe. You call that simple? He's equivocating over his terminology here. God has enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers and praises of billions of people simultaneously. God may be almighty, all-seeing, all-knowing, but the one thing he cannot be, if it's to match up to the job description, is simple, says Dawkins. Well, Dawkins is misunderstanding simplicity and Swinburne on simplicity. He quotes Swinburne uh, from Is There a God?, um, Swinburne says theism postulates for its one cause a person with infinite power, infinite knowledge and infinite freedom it's one cause a person with these infinite qualities Dawkins writes God is simple for Swinburne because there is only one of him yet that one person has enough bandwidth etc etc what he's missed is the one cause a person with infinite, infinite, infinite um, Swinburne's point isn't just that there's only one God, but that God doesn't just have some power, but not more or less, where you could ask the question, well, why that much power? God, by nature, by definition, is the greatest possible being, as it were, he is, has infinite power. He has all the power it's possible for one, you know, greatest possible being to have, etc., uh, that's metaphysically simpler. It just follows from the definition. He says a person couldn't be a person if they had zero degrees of power, knowledge, and freedom, and so on. But to suppose a finite limit to these qualities is less simple than to suppose no limit. Or well, as uh, Wesley Richards, in a very good article in this book, uh, <coughs> Essays uh, for Faith and Clarity, Philosophical Contributions to Christian Theology, he says... The doctrine of divine simplicity is principally the claim that God is not made of parts. That is, God is not composite in the sense of being made up of elements or properties that are more fundamental than God is. I.e., God is not like a mix-and-match deity of fridge magnets, where he is made up of the fridge magnets, which are independent bits that are more kind of basic to his reality than he is, as it were. Now, that claim of divine simplicity in the theological sense doesn't entail that God doesn't have distinguishable properties or that God isn't a trinity of distinct divine persons and so on. Um, the agnostic philosopher, in a, chairing a debate, a discussion between Dawkins and Rowan Williams here, the agnostic philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny, uh, talking on this point, distinguished complexity of structure from complexity of function, and he gave this analogy of the electric shaver and the cutthroat razor. He said, look, the electric razor can only cut a beard, 
but the cutthroat razor might also be used to cut a throat. You get the point. Um, demonstrating complexity of function doesn't demonstrate complexity of structure. This has more complexity of function, but it's much simpler <laughs> than the electric razor. Dawkins' reply to Kenny was, I really don't see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, as Thomas Nagel, atheist, says, look, if God exists, God is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. And that's kind of what Dawkins is assuming he is by begging the question against him being a necessary, simple being. None of Dawkins' observations, in other words, where he's arguing, oh, that's not simple, uh, none of those observations is an argument showing that to fulfil his job description, God must be complex and not simple in the relevant senses of the terms. Dawkins equivocates over the terms complex and simple in order to beg the question against God being a simple, necessary being. And as John Lennox points out, uh, if he'd published a book called The Created God Delusion or Con The Contingent God Delusion, he would probably have sold a lot fewer copies. Um, I've gone over my time a little bit there, so I'm going to stop there. I do have some material on Dawkins and the moral argument, um, but I've probably said enough for uh, sparking a discussion of questions and things. So. He doesn't do any better on the moral argument. That's, that's, that's the short of it. Basically, he doesn't know what the moral argument is, so he attacks a whole series of straw men with red herrings. Yeah. <laughs>